0: This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we're returning to nature. We'll hear from Milanese architect Mario Cuccinella and visit the Barbican with Julia Watson. Plus, we'll talk biomimicry with b architects. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. Mario Cuccinella's namesake design practice is a creative studio at the forefront of efficient, environmentally friendly design. The Italian architect is known for using a range of techniques to achieve this, from smog-eating ceramics to biomimetic building layouts that regulate temperature. A passionate traveller, he has also just released a new book which reflects on some of the places he has visited over the years, from a man-made subtropical garden in Ireland to an ancient hospital in Syria. Monaco's Charlie Filmer met Mario to discuss all this and began by asking him about his world first 3D printed house. If we build a house and I'm digging a hole in my
1: garden, take the hurt, put it on a machine, and then machine printing a house with the design which is done before, adapting to the climate, maybe we've we broken the paradigm that is possible. I think the most important things on that project was the way you design. So we bring it back the idea. Maybe the sustainability is not about technology. or I mean, it's not only about technology. It's mainly about design. How you design a building. Mm. And this printer printing a shape like a little bit like a pantheon, no? it's a dome no? yeah. with a big hole, because we cannot close the house with the printer because the mud is wet, so it will be collapsed. So now we need to leave this mm-hmm. kind of a big skylight. And the mm-hmm. way we design is really how the wall is designed to adapt to that specific climate. So yeah. the exercise was, oh, okay, but if I do that in close to Bologna, but if I do in uh, in Bali, which is the climate is completely different, which kind of shape is come out? Or if I'm doing a very cold weather, what, what which kind of a shape? So it's coming back the idea that maybe the digital world it, it makes us the opportunity to design different buildings in different place. Mm. That's what we don't do now. No, we do the same buildings almost everywhere, no? And I like this idea then old material like a, is the oldest and <laughs> and and there's everywhere mm. you know? combining with the digital the digital design and a very simple machine invention like the 3d printer you can print house different house in different place in a very simple way it is not complicated all the complexities and the way you design the, yeah. the way you the thickness of your wall the shape and maybe you want to increase ventilation or you want to keep the heating inside or you want to get a big window because you want to maximize the Sun so it's about the way you design. I think it's quite interesting that you use the word experiment there.
2: Obviously, in your eyes, that's kind of what you're viewing it as. But looking at it from the outside, is it also an exercise in that proving that if you can solve these problems and that this can be done, then you know, little aspects of the project could maybe be borrowed by other people, and yes. then eventually it kind of snowballs towards being used in the industry.
1: Yeah, that that was the the other idea. No? Is not to keeping as We do ourselves, you know. It's the moment you know how to do it, everybody can do it. Material. So I thought was really a vision of a social vision of using technology. That's what we like to think. It's not something I invented, this is mine. No, this is this is uh this is something we do, but we share with Mm -hmm. all and then if we can do better, much better, I'm happy. Oh, brilliant. Maybe moving on to one of your more
2: recent projects, the San Raffaele hospital building yes. in, in Milan. And now that's particularly unique in terms of its kind of impact on its surroundings. Notably, the thing that stood out for me was the, the kind of smog absorption and, and yeah. things like that. Could you maybe talk us through, first of all, why you decided to integrate that onto the building and, and how you went about doing it?
1: Well, design hospital is very difficult. Yeah. That's well, that I,
2: I, that I did find that kind of fascinating is it yeah, function fair. has to come first of the hospital really? absolutely
1: so there's no I mean the first point is hospital need to need to be functioning well and the functionality is changed in time because the way we people's cure is, is change technology is coming really strongly inside the buildings and especially this kind of is working 24 hours a day every day all the time you cannot stop so the way you design to make life people safe, you no, know? mm. and that is the one thing. And the second one is how you design architecture in a hospital. Normally, are very heavy buildings, no, and because it's a functionality first, and then yeah. you try yeah. to make that better. Again, I think the, the idea to make more interesting building in terms of performance become also a problem for a hospital because they're very consuming, no, because they need air conditioning all the time, they need heating and cooling all the time, so. You see, the building is is a white. You know, is they call the client call is a iceberg. You know that's the yeah. the, the, the yeah. metaphor they use. And is it's seventy percent the building is opaque, so it's a very high thermal mass, mm-hmm. so which is reducing the demand, of course, from in and out. And then we use these louvers, vertical louvers. they are a little. The, the building has four facades. They are curved. You know? And the the point are the most interesting part of the hospital because are the more public part. So if you go visiting your friend or your families, you don't need to go in the room. You go in this corner, which is more transparent. It will be like a living room. Oh, Okay. So creating a sort of a more families a domestic area in mm. the hospital, which is I think is is a very good trend to make people feel at home. Yeah. Not not in a difficulty in the room. Normally is difficult. And the louvers are made by ceramic and white ceramic. and the, the composition of ceramic is contain a, a titanium molecule. So the smog or the pollution is go attack to this uh, ceramic, and then they transform this pollution in salt. So when it's raining, the salt is flush away and it's not anymore polluted. That
2: leads on pretty well to your to your other project, which is, is nearing completion, right, in the the NICE headquarters in Brazil. Yes. And that is centred around, you know, biomimicry and biomimetic technology. You can think about it in terms of, you know, intervention in terms of environment. And as you say, like, there, it's almost like the mitigation. You're dealing with the problem after it's happened. But this seems like a really forward-thinking way of, of addressing things. Could you maybe just tell us, first of all, maybe explain the importance of biomimicry in architecture for you and how you've integrated it into this project?
1: Yeah, well, I think we—it's time is mature to understand the complexity of nature, you know, which is sometimes, for a long time, we're just looking but don't understand. So I just just mentioned my friend uh, Stefano Mancuso is professor in a, a Neurology of Plants. You said, what? it plants have a brain well n- not visible but there's something there make plant very intelligent and we don't know enough how the plants reacting how the plants modify themselves and how plants will be able to adapt to any kind of climate, also the most extreme. The point is the plant are in the planet is more than forty million years and then us as the Homo sapiens we are only here for three hundred thousand years. So it's a little gap. <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> a gap of adapting ourselves to climate and also understand what does the phenomenon around us. Mm-hmm. So I think what we try to, to, to use in that knowledge in buildings, to see how can building have a behaviors like a plants, not put plants on buildings, which is good in any case, but how materials shape and things reacting with climate. Mm-hmm. And then I think open new frontier, what this technology will be. Maybe not anymore a big machine, but the way you design the way you're using material and the reaction of building to what's happened around yeah and that I think that's really fascinating so i I think we we are in the end of a period where we thought technology is like a big muscle, you no know, it's power you know, yeah. And now we say well maybe maybe we don't need all this power, maybe we don't have enough power to do that yeah you know? and and is that kind of what
2: you you wanted to go for in your approach with the the nice headquarters in terms of you know, you don't need to use energy to heat or to cool, you yeah. know, if, if the building is designed in a
1: certain way, then it does away with all of those things. Yes, and we try in many buildings to do it, but in nice, also, I can say, is a nice weather too, <laughs> <laughs> it's a tropical area, so we, we don't need to eat the buildings, no. but we need to protect the building from the sun, because it's hot. So the way we make this cantilever roof, you not know, to shading the buildings all the time and make a, this kind of a big void inside, which is open air, so it's raining inside, yeah. and air move inside the building. They don't need, in that public space, any air conditioning. It's, yeah, it's two hours uh, on the north of Sao Paulo. So showing that if we have knowledge about climate and how buildings, they Dealing in a sort of a complicity, you know, or, or empathy, you yeah. maybe you can really achieve the idea that building. Don't need too much. But I did also want to talk about one thing, which is
2: retrofitting. Which you know you, you've worked at the Vatican um, and a number of other historical buildings, and as you say, that architects are kind of at the forefront of of dealing with the climate crisis, as buildings consume so much energy. Yeah. How do you balance? I guess it's multiple things really balance the the environmental goals and sustainability aims with beautiful whole buildings, which may be incredibly inefficient.
1: yeah, this is a good question uh, The question is about what is beauty is, you know. Is the beauty now is uh, because the building is only working well, it doesn't consume energy. And then yeah. I recognize this is a beauty, or is it only an aesthetic point of view? Because if you only go in aesthetic, the aesthetic is like fashion, never handy. <laughs> you know? And buildings are consuming by this. Now, today is wobbly. Tomorrow is zigzag. After tomorrow, we wobbly zigzag. It's a never end. You no, know? so I think we need to back to our roots. Then buildings are very important for society. It's very important for humans. But we need to design better buildings. Maybe with less, I say, maybe less extreme aesthetic, but with more, more ethics. No, you know? mm. You're living in a the building that you know. You don't make a mess in the planet. I think yeah. that is a value. And I think it's many, many companies, many cities, now they're thinking. Then
2: and do you think that is maybe a trend that, that we're going to start to see more in terms of potentially less decoration, less lavishness and more focus on function?
1: For maybe the aesthetics change a little bit because we know these buildings make life better for people. And architect's work is combining these two things, no? yeah. the ethics side of work, but also the aesthetic. Mm. And I think for a long time we really focus on the aesthetic and less on the impact building, the social impact on buildings. Yeah. Because buildings are common good, that's for sure. No? Yeah. Whatever are public or private is, is part of the life of everybody. Yeah. So, like, I, I love to work in schools, No. Because school is the first message the society gives to the young generation is, I am take care about you, design a better building I can. Mm. Because you can learn better, because you make your friend, because you can imagine something, because building help you to have more imagination. So this is the
0: responsibilities of an architect. That was Mario Cuccinella speaking to Monocle's Charlie Filmer Court. London's Barbican is now showing an exhibition called Our Time on Earth, which looks at design's relationship with the natural environment. For the project, designer and author Julia Watson was commissioned to create a showcase of Indigenous technologies that are invaluable to our response to the climate crisis. Titled Symbiocene, it looks into how Indigenous technologies could be used to improve urban environments by 2040. We caught up with Julia at the exhibition's opening to find out more.
3: So the Symbiocene was really trying to envision in the year 2040 how we can look at the technologies that are presented in low-tech and think of them as hybridised with technologies that exist now and what would be the outcome of a really positive urban environment where low-tech had become the prevalent way that technologies were designed in our urban environments. And the Symbiocene was really taking the idea that Humans and nature need to become more symbiotic to confront climate change and to create technologies that can really exist in the future. So we're actually creating a, an idea for the next era of humankind after the Anthropocene, which would be the Symbiocene, where humans were living with natural systems in a really symbiotic way. In low-tech, what I'm trying to present is this idea that we are quite obsessed with technologies that are have been manifest in the last couple hundred years, but there are thousands of technologies that were manifest prior to that, that still exist. So while we might be talking about the past, we're actually talking about the present as well. They're just technologies that we don't really acknowledge as technologies. So they're also technologies that have been evolved and have dealt with climate change and climate extremes for sometimes thousands of years. So we're building on the past beds of knowledge and then creating these technologies that are present today and bringing them into a conception where they can be applied for our use in a much broader context. The reason why we're looking at rural communities is only because the opportunity for these technologies to remain was in these types of spaces in places that haven't been developed and haven't been consumed with the ideology of progress of the dominant culture of the present time so those where these technologies have actually remained and so we look at these examples and we think about decontextualizing them from the rural, actually sort of erasing those boundaries i think in the work that i do to say okay this is rural and this is urban because if we look at them as a technology I think we have the ability to think about their recontextualization within an urban environment which might just mean a different scale or might mean multiple applications that weren't so much presented in those rural environments. These types of technologies and this type of knowledge will in the future be applied in the urban context. And that's sort of the proposition that low tech begins to present. However, we haven't really discovered a path forward for how to do that. And I think what we're presenting here is almost like a toolkit to understand how do we go from seeing these technologies and documenting these technologies to thinking about how knowledge is shared from a community, how that knowledge can be used by engineers, how can it be recontextualized and hybridised to think about new technologies in new contexts, and what will be the end result of that knowledge sharing in terms of benefit sharing that goes back to the community. So there is a piece of this exhibition that says, okay, these are new technologies, but there's also another piece, which is a new legal technical innovation called an SOOU, a Smart Oath of Understanding, which is a spoken word oral contract between Bureau Hap, the engineers and each of the communities that allows the intellectual property that's shared in these workshops that belongs to these communities to be applied and hybridised to create new technologies and promises benefit sharing and reparations for the sharing of that knowledge into the future setting up these workshops with these communities where we are starting to hybridize this uh, knowledge and technologies, there's always that moment of, well, what does the community get from this? It's been a discussion that was present all the way through many discussions about low-tech, and I knew that setting up this process that would allow people to understand how they can start to work with communities, we need to take at the forefront, this idea of the intellectual property and set a precedent, a very aspirational precedent about how this knowledge is shared. Because we see in the biomedical industry, we see in biotech, how these intellectual property has just been somewhat stolen from these communities. And we didn't want to replicate those mistakes that have been made in other fields. So a really large and, as I said, emergent part of this process has been to create this legal technical innovation where, yes, each of the communities was on board. They were aware that they were giving the knowledge under sort of the contract that if this technology was ever used by Bureau Hapold, the engineering firm, in the future for profit, that they would see benefit sharing from that. And... It's in the form of a smart contract. So that means that it's transparent. It's incredibly autonomous. It can work without a lawyer even. It goes onto the blockchain. And so any reparations will be triggered and we'll be able to pay the communities reparations through decentralized systems. And you know it was really interesting to start to bring in this idea of crypto and the blockchain into how we sort of start Sharing intellectual property, starting to see actually that these types of systems of decentralised economics actually work incredibly well with the types of communities that we're working with. And we're sort of making parallels between the blockchain being sort of incredibly synonymous with low tech.
0: The architect Julia Watson there. The exhibition, Our Time on Earth, is on at London's Barbican until the 29th of August 2022. You may have heard of biophilia, but what about biomimicry? It's a relatively new term coined in 1997 that looks to nature as a model for inspiration when innovating across various fields. But can we continue to harness the potential of biomimicry when it comes to design? Monocle's Mailey Evans caught up with Jamie Miller, Director of Biomimicry at Toronto based firm BnH Architects. He began by talking about one example of biomimicry that we may all be familiar with Velcro.
4: Biomimicry by definition is innovation that is inspired by nature and the most classic example is Velcro, which was invented in the 1940s by a man named George de Maestrel who was fed up with those burrs that stuck to his pants and he took his frustration into fascination to copy that burr, the hooking mechanism, to make Velcro, which is one of the most successful adhesives of our time. It's also Whale Power which is a company that copied the bumps of a humpback whale fin and applied it to a wind turbine blade to increase efficiency by 20% but also um, make it more efficient and and work at slower wind speeds and it was a lot quieter. So fundamentally biomimicry is about understanding that nature's been refining design over billions of years and biomimicry is a lens that invites us to to explore these these time-tested genius these these solutions and figure out how they can apply to our own challenges. And, and what's great is that nature shows us how to design on this planet. You know, it solves very similar problems to the ones that we're facing, does so in the very same context and bound by the same materials and resources that we do. It does it in a such elegant and, and sustainable way.
5: I understand you started out as an engineer. So how did biomimicry become part of your design approach?
4: I was a third year engineering student at Queen's University in Canada, and up until this point I had been kind of struggling with this idea that what we were being taught wasn't the only way to do things, that there are other ways of designing, that there was a maybe a lack of creativity to what I was learning. And I took a, an elective called Math and Poetry, where we spent an hour and a half exploring math theorems and an hour and a half exploring poems. One particular theorem called the Fibonacci sequence cracked open this journey that I've been on ever since. And the Fibonacci sequence is just a sequence of numbers that when you play with it, you get this geometric spiral. And this spiral is the same spiral that you find in pine cone packaging, in sunflower seeds, in the vortex that you get when you pull your plug in your bathtub. It's in your skin pores. This spiral is ubiquitous in nature. And for some reason, this theorem kind of opened up a new possibility that up until that point, I had been learning to use math and science to engineer the environment. And yet this theorem was teaching me that nature could teach us about design.
5: Excellent. And, and you, you were discussing there the Fibonacci sequence and seeing that in nature. I wondered if you could discuss maybe your project, the Bengaluru House in India and, and the ways in which a biomimetic approach were used in that project.
4: We use form-based biomimicry to create a passive cooling facade, a wall. So one of the challenges is, how do you cool a building in a hot climate? And the first thing we did was look to the organisms that know how to cool themselves in that climate. So we looked at elephants, we looked at barrel cactus, we look at termite mounds or ant hills, and we used strategies from all of those. And the one that I found most interesting was the elephant skin. Cracks in the skin of an elephant provide a a bit of a protective area for moisture. When the elephant puts water on its skin, the cracks kind of absorb this this moisture, and as it walks through the the hot sun, it evaporates over a longer period of time. So you can imagine a flat surface, the, the water would evaporate quite quickly. But the cracks create a bit of a protective area that allow the evaporation to take place over longer periods. We took that metaphor and created a wall that provides the same function It's a rock wall, essentially. We've stacked these rocks in such a way that when you trickle water from the rain harvesting system over them, the cracks in the rocks provide the same function as the cracks in the elephant skin. When put on the south side of the wall, it evaporates over a longer period of time, pulling the hot air from the building and cooling it over a longer period of time. You know, we even proposed, what if we built iteratively, you know, building one room at a time You think of a forest, it doesn't all of a sudden pop up, it grows successively, it grows through iterations. And those iterations allow it to be informed by the information. So every time it does something new, the environment changes and it picks up information and changes to the environment. So there's this kind of cyclical process, whereas our buildings are quite ignorant to that evolution. We just pop them up and then the environment changes and then we add air conditioners or whatever to to try and mitigate those changes.
5: And when you discuss biomimicry with people and and explain the concept, what's the response like? It feels to me like quite an ancient way of thinking and maybe just one that we've lost connection to.
4: Biomimicry is not new. It's a new term for a very old idea. I work quite closely with an indigenous elder in Canada. And when I told her what I did, she said, well, Jamie, we've been doing biomimicry for thousands of years. My grandfather, he embedded principles of nature into his agricultural practices for the hundred years he was on this planet. But when I talk about the concept, there's almost a visceral reaction and it kind of conjures up something in their gut and it seems so practical and, and so common. The inevitable next question seems to often be, how do I apply it? And I think that's the interesting part that despite it not being a new idea, People struggle to apply this practice and this philosophy to what they're doing. You know, it's a lot about the mindset, the philosophies, the principles, the assumptions, ultimately the paradigms that we've adopted. You know, some of these fundamental ideas that we believe that we're separate from nature or that nature exists for human consumption and that it's infinitely exploitable or that we can control and dictate nature. These basic assumptions are at the root of what we use to design today. And when I say we, I'm talking about the dominant culture. There are indigenous cultures that don't think this way and don't build this way, but the dominant culture adheres to these certain principles and assumptions. And that's why people struggle so much to understand how to apply it because the assumptions we're building on are incompatible with the way that nature works. And so how do you shift those systems? How does nature shift systems? How does nature create resilience in times of change? And could we learn from that in how we need to now change? Whether we want to change or not, climate change, COVID-19, these massive global issues are forcing us to change. And they're forcing us to confront our earlier paradigms. And that's why it's so difficult. These are called wicked problems because there's no precedent for how to solve them. That's why biomimicry is so beautiful is that it teaches us that we don't have to do this alone, that there's a system that exists outside our back door of technology that can teach us how to thrive on this planet. We just need to relook. And that's why indigenous perspectives are so valuable at this point because I don't think they ever lost that. We have to recognize that we may get what we see wrong. We may see a metaphor and and you know, try to apply it and it might lead to a solution that doesn't create conditions conducive to more life. And that's the fundamental principle of, of nature is that it creates conditions conducive to more life. If you let nature be, it grows to higher diversity. As I try to understand nature, I'm recognizing my own, my own limitations. Like I may be misinterpreting something and I may apply it and it may be totally wrong. It may not do the thing that I think it was gonna do. And this is kind of the beauty of biomimicry. It's a constant dance with nature and you're ultimately letting nature lead. A big part of biomimicry is moving beyond our own human exceptionalism and humbling ourselves to realize that there's a a model and a mentor out there that we have no idea what it's doing, but if we can continue to unpack and get in relationship with it, maybe we'll learn a thing or two.
5: I'm curious as to what it's like when you're working with clients and proposing this as a design method. What's the reception like? Is there a bit of tentativeness in that they might not have seen anything quite like it before? Or is there a real drive to be adventurous and to to leap into the unknown?
4: The clients I work with are are amazing. They're the latter group, um, to your question. They're the ones that see that we need to be bold, we need to be dramatic, and they're willing to be the pioneers in this evolution. Now, I know that that's not every client, I think a lot of the people uh, we work with have, you know, this tendency and desire to want to see it built first and to see it run efficiently and to see it make them money. And, and that's fine. I understand that that's the system we exist in. And it's also for me a great challenge. It's like, okay, I know that nature's more efficient. It's my responsibility as a director of biomimicry to find out how to showcase the value proposition of using biomimicry that's my playground that's where I get to have fun and work with brilliant people to collaborate on making that those ideas real
5: one thing I am curious about is how you switch off because surely if your pool for inspiration is the natural world there's endless possibilities aren't there Uh, I can imagine just going for a walk in a park and and seeing the way a seed is scattered or the iridescence of a beetle's wing can spark off potential uses or or ideas. So how do you manage that?
4: (laughs) I think uh, this is why I can't do anything else. Um, So I think to answer your question, I don't really shut off. And that's part of the beauty of this. It, It is a shift in your perception and your perspective. And so... When I look at a forest, I don't see trees and bushes. I see ancient elders that have long lasted climate change that are pumping water up hundreds of feet without electricity or mechanical devices. I see these towers growing solar panels, these, these leafs that are solar voltaic, and they're using only a subset of periodic table of elements. They're manufacturing in water at body temperature, at body pressure. I see a forest that's interconnected through their mycelium, you know, sharing information and resources. And I think, what if our buildings were interconnected like that? As a father of two young boys, I mean, I have to think positively because I'm not going to get caught up in the perception that humans are on their way to extinction. I really acknowledge and, and love the Indigenous philosophy of seven generations where we look back seven generations and learn from the elders and and the time-tested genius but we also design for seven generations long after our great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren Design for those children that we can't even imagine it's like the old adage you plant a tree for the shade you'll never get to experience
0: Jamie Miller there, in conversation with Mailey Evans. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our 5-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Or, if you prefer print, then pick up a copy of Monocle magazine on All Good Newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Mailey Evans. She also edited the show with assistance from our studio managing team, Callum McLean, Chris Blackwa, and Sarah Nickel. I'm Nick Manese, and you can reach me at nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.